0: We record on Turrbal and Yagira country in Mianjin, Brisbane. The Committee for Brisbane acknowledges the First Nations people of the region and their continuing connection to and care of the land, waters and community of that region. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to Dream Boldly. The podcast that brings together the best and brightest minds from Brisbane, Australia. Proud host city of the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Our guests will be experienced and well-known Brisbane leaders sharing big ideas to help shape a better city and region. Our
1: guest is visionary architect, Liam Probitz, founder and creative director of award-winning Brisbane-based architectural practice, Bureau Probitz. For more than 30 years, Liam and his team have been at the forefront of innovative solutions for cultural, housing and development projects spanning Australia, Asia and the Middle East. But it's his hometown of Brisbane that has his heart. Here to chat Brisbane's rapidly changing physical landscape, the city's unique architectural style and the neighbourhoods to watch. Welcome, Liam. Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much for joining us today, Liam. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I would
2: describe myself as a Brisbane boy, really. I, um, I'm i born and bred Brisbane and South East Queensland, really. Spent uh, early childhood hood up at the Sunshine Coast and, and most of my formative years in inner Brisbane. So I, you know, I feel like Brisbane's my hood.
1: Your firm, Bureau Proberts, is is based here in Brisbane, has been operating for more than 30 years, but has, of course, that is a, an opportunity that's taken you right around the world. What is it about Brisbane that makes it the perfect home base for your business?
2: Well, I guess when we started the business, and, and that was 1990, and for those that can remember, 1990, it was pretty well the middle of a recession and... and there is a school of that thought that's the best time to start a business. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's the only time you can start a business and through a, a mix of circumstances, it was the right thing for me to do at that time. And I, I had a, I had an ambition to start a business or a practice in architecture and that was the right time. It was quite challenging to do that personally, but it was the right thing to do. And so therefore we sort of cut our teeth on what makes Brisbane tick. It was also the start of quite a quite a push for urban renewal in inner brisbane which uh, so our office was in the city there was a lot of stuff happening in the inner north in the valley and the tenerife precinct and newstead as well as west end so really inner brisbane was totally changing so it was a really probably one of the most changing cities in the world at that time which is not often recognized but it, it absolutely was happening as brisbane was rediscovering the river Was discovering the fact that all of the things that made Brisbane tick as a city, the wool stores, the industrial streets, the the mercantile part of the valley was actually, you know, the, the beating soul of our character.
1: I think that's one of the extraordinary things when you look back at the history of the city and where its neighbourhoods kind of started to take shape. And you think of places now, key lifestyle destinations like Newstead and Tenerife, Olimba and it's so hard to fathom that they were once neglected parcels of land.
2: It is hard to fathom, and, uh, but... Witnessed that firsthand, you know. Well, the river was really a conduit for transport and trade, and so all of its development, you know, from from Pink and Bar all the way up to Dara, was about trade and goods and services for the large part of the the history of the city, until around about the fifties and sixties, when those really tightly held apartments in New Farm that had the great river views and some of the houses out towards Indrapilly and you know on the river at Saint Lucia were really taking advantage of what it was to live on the river. And a few of those early houses, pioneering houses, had done the same thing. So it was being rediscovered as a living quality. Of course, it floods and we've got to be sensible about how you deal with that. But the value of of Brisbane as a river city and as a subtropical river city in that time is being rediscovered.
1: Brisbane is Australia's biggest subtropical city and its architecture really leans into this. The outdoor lifestyle is something that is so key to the way that Brisbaneites enjoy the city. The term you use is Brisbaneism to describe this kind of architecture. What are the characteristics of Brisbaneism?
2: Look, I would say it's not just the architecture. You know, I guess architecture is a function of the values of a city. Because we, you know, as I, we, I've explained, we as architects we respond to to our clients' ambitions, but also the city's ambitions and what is possible within within all of those constructs. And you know, I think that's been changing in a really positive way since since I started practice. But a Brisbaneism are those things that are we don't take ourselves too seriously, and we. We really like a good, honest discussion. We're very open and our climate does help this. So I guess a Brisbaneism is, um, you know, walking up the back stairs uh, rather than the front stairs to, you know, visit someone or, you know, having a drink under the house of a Queenslander rather than, you know, in the middle room of the, uh, the, the house. So that, they're Brisbaneisms and they're very honest, open ways to approach, approach our lifestyle. And when you see a building that responds to that character and an openness, you know, connection with its climate and its views and also a welcoming stance to our climate. It has an identity that is a Brisbaneism and, you know, I think we should be calling those out and and championing them and say, that is a Brisbaneism, let's do more of that.
1: And would you say it's those kinds of opportunities that drive the type of work that Bureau ProBits does? Uh,
2: Look, I would. We look for the opportunities that enable a building or a precinct or a place to connect with its users and its people and the city fabric. So I guess because we're in Brisbane, we're, we're more on the lookout for those opportunities where we can hopefully improve Brisbane and therefore hopefully there's some Brisbaneisms within the work that we do because we think that the character of Brisbane is really led by the buildings and the developments that are happening along with the public realm. So we're heavily invested and we, we, we do look for those opportunities. Mm.
1: One of the great recent examples of that that you've just described is, of course, West Village in West End, for which I know that your firm was involved or is involved in the development of that site. It's a former commercial site that's now an incredible, vibrant, multi-award winning neighbourhood of residential, commercial, public realm. What's the secret to its success, do you think?
2: The West Village development, I guess, is emblematic of what we were talking about before is that, you know, Brisbane is folding itself from being, you know, at the, the heart of its city being, you know, a trade and mercantile place to be a place to live. And these sites that were former warehouses, former, former trading places are in really, really well-located places like West Village. So a large passable land of land and a very important, really knuckle of where Boundary Street meets Melbourne Street. And, you know, it turns its way up the hill towards the river again, a really well-held piece of West End. So all of the ingredients were there to make that, you know, a successful site. And West End as a a living place over the last, you know, 20 to 30 years has just become more and more in demand. I think one of the things that makes West End in, in demand is it hasn't lost its character, you know, the Boundary Street character uh, Vulture Street. You know, you know the bridge over Dor- uh, the Dauntless Terrace over Boundary Street. Those Brisbaneisms that make West End West End are, are intact. So it had a lot of things going for it from day one. So putting a population in there and adding the convenience, you know, of a retail centre that the population really needs to serve, has made that a successful development. For us, and we did have some involvement in the early and advisory capacity in the early planning of that site, and keeping street connections and pedestrian connections are really important to making a suburb work. And I think West Village does that. Our recent project, the Eaves, which is on the corner, you know, a very important corner, folding in the gun shop, cafe, and the other Boundary Street buildings, we felt was a really important arrival point for West Village, opening up onto the parkland, which which the developers have left as parkland, which are basically amplified as parkland. So we called it the eaves is because we wanted to feel like people were under the house and have that open, casual connection with the landscape and really want to be there and feel like it was connected to the site. And Peter's Ice Cream Factory is, if you've grown up in Brisbane, you know what Peter's Ice Cream Factory means. And it's a very substantial brick warehouse building. So we used... The brick of that building as a sort of a motif, I guess, for us to create a character to our EBS building, but a much more open way.
1: Tell us about the criteria that you apply when you look at not only the opportunities that come your way, but the types of projects that you seek out. What are you looking for in a brief?
2: As a group of architects, we have to meet the brief. There's a commercial objectives or living objectives for a house or what, whatever the user group may be, You know, commercial objectives for an office or for a government or a memorial. There's objectives that we have to meet. As a practice, we like to look beyond the brief and beyond the conventional response to say, well, what else, what other job has this project got to do? And is that aligned with our clients' values? And where can we add value for everyone, the client, the city, the user? and hopefully have some fun along the way doing it. That's what what drives us.
1: And what is the approximate breakdown of the amount of projects that are local, national and international? Oh, we're
2: heavily Brisbane. I don't have a number for you, but it'll be, you know, 80, 90% probably 90%. And we are working in, you know, the Sunshine Coast and Gold Coast, which we call local, that's southeast Queensland. In North Queensland, we've done work in, in Townsville and a little bit in Cairns over the time. So we enjoy that in Canberra, the police memorial down there and a couple of things in Sydney. But we're heavily subtropical, you know, centric. Mm. Thankfully, and I probably it was because uh, when I started my practice everyone else including my wife now was heading overseas to have that experience and so I was torn between between that you know dance so it's probably why I'm very open to working internationally now but but I also think our approach to life in Queensland is valued internationally we do have a can do approach to things uh, we understand you've got to be frugal but ambitious at the same time so hopefully that is what's resonating with our work overseas, but we're heavily we're heavily Brisbane centric.
1: And over that thirty plus years, one or two projects that really stand out as particular works of pride for you personally.
2: I guess there's moments along the journey that are quite pivotal, whether they're a project or or even a relationship that leads to projects. Um, or you take a little bit of a punt. You know, one of those things was the police memorial, I guess, in Canberra where we we had a connection. You know, my father was a policeman in his early earlier life and we felt we could offer something, you know, a bit of that thing beyond what the brief is saying is we thought we understood what it is behind, you know, this sort of almost this sort of brotherhood of police that, you know, they go to work every day and risk their lives and, you know, but they have to come home every night to their families. It's really quite a... Our responsibility so we wanted to capture that in the memorial and that gave us the motivation to enter the competition which was an open competition and we were lucky enough to win it but i guess the sense on one end of the scale the sense of meaning and value that the police community got out of that i got to see firsthand and that was you know that was really really moving and 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 i felt we were adding value
1: and chat uh listeners through what your response to that brief was that ultimately led to the practice being appointed it was an
2: open competition and our approach to was to say, well, okay, we know how this memorial you know may work. What is it that our architecture needs to uncover to express in this memorial that may not be evident to the everyday person? And we called it the bread and milk. The policemen and women go to work every day and risk their lives. They still have to pick up the bread and milk on the way home, do what everyone else does going to work, but their job has this complete other layer that I think everyone needs to understand and respect. So memorialising and honouring the people that had lost their lives in, in their day of work is incredibly important. And that we really, really strongly connected with that once we, once we got into the brief and that's what we wanted to express in the memorial.
1: The police memorial is obviously a, a really proud project of yours interstate. What about one here at home?
2: Yes, look, it was an interstate project and also a project where the clients were the police community. So a very different way to procure a project, I can go through a design process. So in terms of development and a local development for a client that would like to you know, contribute to the city, but also do a good development at the same time, a project that comes to mind is SILT, an apartment project we did under, you know, near the Story Bridge in Kangaroo Point. And we spoke openly about the need for this project to be of its place, to respond to its climate and aspect, not only because we like to do that, but it's actually the fundamental of creating good places to live, having a sense of identity in the places you live as we're creating density in the city is just as important as creating the space. So we think we captured that in Silt and created a sort of a new type of living in that part of the city. And we'd like to think it's influenced some of the living spaces that have been created
1: in the last number of years. One of our generation's great crises is housing. In fact, it was only reported this week that there are currently 50,000 Queenslanders who are seeking public housing at the moment. What needs to change, do you think?
2: It's a big question and it's a perplexing problem, you know, because development of housing, you know, right at the moment is is challenged by rising build prices, you know, shortage of labour. So building, you know, creating a building that's affordable is difficult, you know, from day one. So I think on that side of the spectrum, there's a there's supply chain and availability of labour and materials issue to, to get costs more affordable. But then there's, a, I guess, a supply chain on the way that, that, housing you know, comes to be available. And clearly, if it's just market-driven, it won't be the solution because it's not going to work in all phases of the market. And I don't know the answer, but I do think it's an engagement between private enterprise, government providers of, of care and housing where the solutions lay. So, I think it's a joint effort. And I think we have the skill and the expertise to make it happen. There's some great examples out there. And I think Maybe with some incentivisation, the development and construction community can help make it happen. I think there needs to be a little bit of an unlocking of the barriers for us all to work together.
1: I know one of the things that you're particularly passionate about is advocating that affordability when it comes to affordable housing doesn't necessarily mean compromise on good design. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: It's hard to give a straight answer, but um, I often say design is about keeping things simple and that can be, become a very complex process. But but if we think about the fundamentals of living, you know, just in our, our community and climate, it's aspect to light and ventilation. It's spaces that are functional and usable. It's having some communal spaces that are accessible and functional. If you get those fundamentals right, there is a lot of latitude to create great spaces. They don't need to be massive, They need to be functional and have those qualities.
1: Several of Brisbane's most loved neighbourhoods and lifestyle precincts, as we discussed a little earlier, were once major industrial centres. What do you think is the next suburb in Brisbane to experience this kind of urban renewal?
2: I think if you think about really the CBD, the meandering, the the centre of Brisbane, and around that, the suburbs we've been discussing, you know, New Farm, Tenerife, West End, there's a bit of a gap in the middle there around the north between the city, Spring Hill. Bowen Hills is starting to happen, but those inner suburbs that really do speak of the character, and they had a quite a density back in the day of timber and tin houses that were you know really close together. I think they do speak to the character of the city, and I think there's a lot that can happen in, in those suburbs in the inner north. I'd like to think that's going to sort of almost complete the circle of the the CBD and create another layer of character that is, a, you know, again, another Brisbaneism and, and a, a true Brisbane character. I might add to that as well, though there's those, the inner north, but also the satellites. We're now a city that has, you know, suburbs that are in their own right communities. And I think with some focus and attention, there can be, you know, an increase in population and density and service and amenity in those areas. I mean, other cities... Do that very well you know it sydney and melbourne do that very well where you've got you know, sub communities you know quite close to the heart, and they're very well connected but of course the knitter to that is transport so i will say that we're a little bit behind i think my favorite project is probably cross river rail because it, to me it opens it's the catalyst for us to becoming a more connected city and i guess the prerequisite to that is say okay we're going to grow as a city as is the density question. So if we take that as an asked and answered, then we have to up our connectivity and our public transport and our ability to get around the city to make it more functional.
1: And what are the open lines of communication between those who are responsible for infrastructure in a transport sense and those who are leading the design and construction of our buildings and communities?
2: That's a difficult question. I mean, it's a vexed problem because they travel at different paces there's a whole way that projects are delivered for infrastructure that's different to the way that development is delivered so it's difficult for development to influence infrastructure but there's a heck of a lot of skill in our development and design industry that I think could strongly influence those outcomes and if there was more more discussion I'm totally confident that we'd have you know really good outcomes
1: with Brisbane elected as the host city for the 2032 Games, we'll, of course, start to see accelerated infrastructure projects on the horizon. Where will Bureau ProBets prioritise investment over the coming decade?
2: Oh, well, for us, it's a, an investment of time and energy more than anything as a, as a practice, as an architectural practice. So we think, and it's starting to happen, I think something like the Olympic Games or as Expo did all those years ago tend to put a, a bit of a finer point on what it is about Brisbane that is that is valuable and good and what must we focus on it's like having a party when you clean up your house you know so okay what's important and so i think for us with the work that we have done it's those communities the living and working communities around the spaces that are going to create density and create great urban realm and make Brisbane a better city that's where we're going to be focusing our time and energy and that's that's where we will be investing that we think it's a fantastic opportunity for brisbane and and as i say just a, a point in time where we can say okay what's important to us
1: and buildings of course play such a vital part in these kinds of global events and some cities get it right and others don't what do you think are the things that we should be looking out for or the cautions that, uh, or considerations that we should have in planning the physical infrastructure that will be required to deliver the Games?
2: I think we need to treat it with a bit of a longer view, I suppose. I think when you have an event like the Olympic Games, where for example, I think there's going to be 60,000 media that need to be housed in Brisbane somewhere, I might have that figure wrong, but you're talking really big numbers. So a city has to expand and has to sort of step up to that, and then probably you know step back down a little bit. So there needs to be some flexibility. So there's probably gonna be some tailing of what the city needs to accommodate after the Olympic Games. So you really need to have a 2042 view, not a 2032 view. So how something like a, an Olympic Games Village can contribute to the city in 2042 is probably more important than what it's gonna do in 2032. So I would say these decisions really need to have a generational view about them because these things, these opportunities or these events really only come around once in a generation.
1: And what are some of those things that you would love to see prioritised if you are looking at that 2042 lens as opposed to 32? What would you love to see 10 years beyond the game in terms of where the city and the state has placed its investment?
2: Oh look, if I had my choice, it would be in that transport infrastructure. If we were a well-connected city, we'd be a better city. That's probably the number one. The number two would be championing developments and and design that support, you know, our aims as a city to be a subtropical city and incentivizing it. So I'd love to see, you know, a number of subtropical buildings be become emblematic of our gains by the time they come around. And I think that you can't do things the same way you've done them to try and get a different outcome. So here's an opportunity for us to get a different outcome. So it's really about state, local, and even Commonwealth working together to provide those opportunities. We've got a very clever development and design community, and I think they will provide the solutions given the opportunity. So I would like to have seen that at 2032, some realisation of those opportunities that are out of the box, but complete Brisbaneisms that might not have otherwise happened without that catalyst.
1: An event like the Games or an event of that scale presents tremendous opportunities across a a great multitude of industries. And we're already starting to see the out-of-towners who are coming in or setting up satellite offices, the internationals who who really see the opportunity in Brisbane 2032. How important is it, do you think, that Queensland businesses are prioritised in the opportunity that will come over the coming years? I think it's
2: incredibly important, not not at all from a selfish point of view, but there's a DNA about Queensland and Brisbane that is going to be not just important, but critical for us to underpin the development that happens in the next 10 years. And it's not to say that we can't learn from other places. You know, my father used to say you can't be a prophet in your own country. We do need to take learnings from other places. And it's not that we can't engage with them, but having the DNA of, a, of Brisbane and Queensland businesses, people, events, you know, I think it's critical.
1: We've chatted about affordability in terms of housing. We've chatted through the expansion, the way that the sprawl is growing in terms of Brisbane. If you had to back the next boom suburb here in Brisbane, what would it be?
2: I think Nunda's done a really good job of um, dealing with its traffic conduits to create a sort of a high street and I can think of a few other suburbs that could do something similar that would really unlock it and make it a great place to be, you know, like Ashgrove and Newmarket. There's places there that just need a little bit of, you know, infrastructure and tweaking. They could become really, really great places to be. But go a little bit further out to Kedron on the north or Camp Hill on the south, and you can see similar conditions. You know, really well-serviced, great residential community, and but a little bit constrained by the traffic that's going through its centre. So I think... Um, the Brisbane City Council have done some great work in creating better places in those precincts. But I think one of those suburbs or a suburb like them that can really unlock it and create a high street that's very livable and great for its residents, as well as being well-connected, then that's going to be the winner.
0: You heard it here first.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, (laughs) Liam.
0: Thanks for listening to Dream Boldly. This podcast is brought to you by the Committee for Brisbane in association with Aruga. The Committee for Brisbane is an independent, not-for-profit organisation whose vision is for Greater Brisbane to be the world's most livable place. To find out more, please visit committeeforbrisbane.org.au. Please remember to rate and share the show. See you next time.